It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I have a great guest to bring to the front of the class this morning for a discussion on Black America and the presidents. But first, we are still in the midst of a presidential election, even while we are staying home to flatten the curve and stop the spread of COVID-19. While primaries have been pushed back in some states due to our current health crisis, there is still a contest happening within the Democratic Party on who will be the nominee. I thought it important to highlight the relationship between Black America and the 45 men who have been president of the United States. 45 men. But before we go there, I want us to focus a bit on our political power in this process. We ought not to be waiting on candidates to present platforms on issues relating to our people and our community, particularly when we know the candidates have obvious blind spots in addressing those issues. The Bernie bros get on my absolute damn nerves. (laughs) But I am not at all mad at the genuine people who are supporting Bernie Sanders' candidacy because they believe in the issues that speak to their needs. There's a difference between seeking a purity candidate and using a candidate as the vehicle for your ideals. There is also a difference between the people that are truly supporting a candidate, um, pushing those issues, and the people who just want to be trolls 24-7 on social media. Now, Joe Biden gets on my nerves, too. Because his middle of the road, I will carry whatever bucket of war a bucket of water leads me to a win style of politics is the type of governing that only gets us incremental change with shout outs to Pookie and them from the big stage. But unfortunately, Pookie and them can't use that shout out as healthcare. They can't use it as collateral to build a business or to buy a house. So it's also important to remember that party politics will not save us. Political parties are a tool. They are political vehicles to be used to get our share of resources and make the system fundamentally fairer. I go back and forth in my mind on whether or not we can truly reform this uh, uh, broken system or if we have to tear the whole thing down and start from scratch. And either way, the system has to be changed. Malcolm X told us so. The American system itself is incapable, is, it is as incapable of producing freedom for the Afro-American as, a, as the system of a chicken is uh, of producing a duck egg. A chicken can't lay a duck egg because it's the system of the chicken isn't constructed in a way to produce a duck egg. And just as that uh, chicken system can't produce, it's not capable to uh, producing a duck egg, the political and economic system of this country is absolutely incapable of producing freedom and justice and equality and human dignity for the 22 million Afro-Americans. Uh, you don't see any possibility of uh, gains uh, or better solutions through uh, uh, political, uh, no. ne- Negro political action or, or economic action. Well, anytime the Negro becomes involved in mature political action, then the resistance 
of the politicians who, who benefit from the exploited political system as it now stands will, come, will, will be forced to put, uh, uh, exercise more uh, violent action to deprive the Negro of his mature political uh, action. In my opinion, mature political action is the type of action that uh, enables the, that involves a program of re-education and information that will enable the black people in the black community to see the uh, fruits that they should be receiving from the politicians who are over them, and thereby they are then able to determine whether or not the politician is really fulfilling his function. And, uh, and if he is not fulfilling his function, they then can set up the machinery to remove him from that position by whatever means necessary. To me, political action involves making the politician who represents us know that he either produces or he is out, and he's out one way or another. Now, when we come back, I'm going to bring to the front of the class our guest and have a discussion about her book and putting into context the relationship between black America and the 45 men who have been presidents. I'm going to say 45 men over and over again, letting you know that there should be some break somewhere, um, maybe a string of women. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But we'll talk more about that when we come back here on Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy, and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back. I am your teacher, but I am bringing another teacher to the front of the class because you know we love books and authors here at Sunday Civics. And our guest this morning is Margaret Kimberly. She is the editor and senior columnist for Black Agenda Report, which I have read for a very long time. Please make sure to read it. It's a, a great, um, you know, we talk about all the time of having um uh, reading sources from various points of view and Black Agenda Report is one of those places that you should keep in your regular rotation. But she recently published Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. And it's a book chronicling the relationship that each of the presidents have had with Black America. I'm really excited actually to talk with you. One, not only about the book, which is going to be the bulk of our conversation, but I also read the Black Agenda Report on a regular basis. And so talking to any of you from over there is, you know, making this nerd in me very giddy about having you on the show. Uh Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The book we are previewing for our guest here on Sunday Civics is Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, with you um, as the author. Can you give us a bit about why you decided to write the book in the first place? Yes, this project began a few years ago. I uh, wrote a column in my, my Black Agenda Report column about Theodore Roosevelt. I had uh, watched one of the public television documentaries about the Roosevelt family. And obviously, when people do these things, it's because they have some uh, respect and admiration for the subject. And uh, but knowing what I did about Roosevelt, I I felt like it covered up 
uh, a lot about him, uh, especially he was an open white supremacist. Um, and uh, among other things, uh, uh, the uh, prototypical imperialist, probably the first imperialist president. And uh, I wrote a column about it and a, um, a friend and supporter of uh, Black Agenda Reports suggested to me that I do the same for all the other presidents. And um, so after some contemplation, I started uh, writing this book, Prejudential, 45 chapters, one for each president. Um, I think it's important for people to know, first of all, to know the truth about history. Uh, so much of the history we're taught um, is either inadequate or outright, uh, outright lies. Um, and omissions are lies. I think it's important for us to know that. So uh, if you tell us that Theodore Roosevelt was a wonderful man, but you don't tell us that he said it was the duty of white women to have babies to make sure that uh, white people remained in the majority, um, if you don't do that, then you're telling a lie. If you uh, don't say that uh, Abraham Lincoln never gave up his dream of sending black people out of the country, then you're telling a lie. And uh, uh, one of the things that's been brought home to me in writing this book is uh, how often biographers and scholars, uh, historians, uh, how much they lie. And they do it, I believe, to, um, to uphold the system and uh, to make sure that people identify with the system we have uh, instead of being truthful about uh, events uh, in the past. I think that's a really important point because people often get very defensive about their idols, <clears throat> right? And in, particularly in the United yes. States, we have built up this culture. It is part of our narrative of this, you know, American exceptionalism, the founding fathers, our presidents, right? America as a culture sort of builds those folks up and African-Americans are not exempt from participating in that culture of idolizing presidents because they have done one thing or because of who they are or they came and showed up at a meeting one day that <laughs> no, <laughs> no one thought they would ever uh, come to. And so, you know, I, 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 I reading um, the different chapters, particularly as we got to the 40s through the 60s and reading how some of the presidents, just because they did a bare I, I wouldn't even call it a bare minimum. Right. But just a, a small sort <laughs> of token of a gesture towards African-Americans or towards a particular uh, identity group, they became the friend of the people. And you spend a lot of time in the book highlighting those particular moments for different presidents, right? That, you know, one showed up in mm -hmm. Harlem and then all of a sudden he was our guy. You know, um, someone, you know, yes. had the uh, illusion of a black cabinet and all of a sudden he's good for, you know, for our people. Talk a bit about that. Yes, um, I, I think most people want to feel positive about the group they identify with. And uh, 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 black Americans are, are also Americans. And many people uh, want to feel good about their country and want to, uh, even as black people and acknowledging our history, we want to 
think that there were people who uh, who worked on our behalf and who um, helped us uh, in our struggle. Uh, I think the most important thing to know, though, is we've always done best when we have made demands uh, as part of a mass movement. And um, uh, that's when we do best. So, for example, with starting with President uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt in the 30s and 40s, he's thought of as a good for black people president. Uh, his wife was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, she did uh, have a lot of public interaction with black people like uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and uh, uh, helping Marian Anderson sing at Link, uh, the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. Um, all of those things. And, and because Roosevelt was the president of the during the Depression and uh, World War II, and um, uh, because of his New Deal initiatives, and he was a groundbreaking president. Um, before uh, he came to office, there were um, the idea of harnessing the government to help people did not exist yet. Uh, so the Social Security Act was groundbreaking. Uh, the fact that there were so many federal regulatory agencies, all of these things were helpful to the people. However, uh, the Democratic Party was also the party of the segregated South. And uh, Roosevelt was um, uh, one of many uh, Democrats uh, until uh, the late 60s who would use the South as an excuse for not doing uh, the things that black people needed. So, for example, for decades, there were calls for anti-lynching legislation, and it never happened. And uh, uh, people like FDR would always say, I wish I could, but my hands are tied and I need Southern support to get the Social Security Act passed or something like that. And he did pass some, you know, pretty tepid uh, civil rights legislation, legislation mostly related to the defense industries and um, uh, jobs for black people. But he did that because A. Philip Randolph threatened to have a march on Washington. And uh, just the idea, the threat of a uh, black mass movement was enough to get him to move a little bit. Uh, Truman, Truman was um, his successor, was not expected to uh, win election in his own right in 1948. He was expected to lose. There was famous, and it was very close, he barely won. There's a famous photograph of him holding up a newspaper which said, Dewey wins, when in fact he was the one who won. But he was advised um, to uh, out, make an outreach to black voters in the North. Well, they were the only black voters, frankly, black people in the South could not vote, uh, to uh, reach out to those black people who could vote and that that might uh, help him win elections. So he, as he said, um, had a rally in Harlem a few days before, I mean, it was a token gesture actually, it was like three or four days before election day in 1948, but thousands of people turned out. Uh, he also desegregated the military, but he did that the same year. Uh, he also had to deal with the uh, uh, Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, and the late Strom Thurmond ran for president uh, independently on this Dixiecrat line. So in order to win, he did have to make some appeal for black votes. And this continued up until Kennedy, until uh, the early 60s, 
uh, uh, same thing. Kennedy used Southerners as his excuse. He chose Lyndon Johnson as his running mate. That was a balanced ticket to have a Northerner and a Southerner. Um, he uh, was not a friend of the civil rights movement. I- initially, he, his first meeting with Martin Luther King was in secret. And he, he, um, he did not support the Freedom Riders. Um, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, was even worse. Bobby Kennedy hated the civil rights movement, I think it's fair to say. He hated the March on Washington. They um, uh, tried everything they could to stop any mass protest. He did. Uh, and, and when these presidents changed, if they changed, it was because the demand didn't stop because the mass movement didn't stop. And uh, Johnson, his successor, he's the one who gets the most credit for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But once again, it was the people who demanded it, and it was the political crisis that was created, which um, forced him to move. So I I think that's the and it's the lesson today, excuse me, in the 21st century, uh, we have uh, unfortunately returned to a kind of passivity uh, in politics, and black politics now amounts to little more than uh, warning the uh, Republican to lose. And uh, so we sit and wait to see which Democrat will get the nomination and uh, concern ourselves who we, with whom we think white people will vote for and therefore can win. We even did that with Obama. Um, he didn't get uh, black support until he won the Iowa caucus, and it was clear that uh, white people would vote for him. But uh, this uh, puts us at a great disadvantage. First of all, let's look at what happened in 2016. Hillary Clinton, despite what we were told about her electability, ended up losing. And uh, these same people who assured us that they knew what they were talking about and that she would win this year are telling us that Biden is more electable. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind when people make these prognostications. What was their record four years ago? And once again, instead of thinking about what we need, thinking about what we want, uh, making the demands as we did in the past, we passively uh, wait to see, put our fingers in the air and wait to see which way the wind is blowing and um, back to the person we think that uh, white people will support. So I think it's important to keep that history in mind as we make decisions now in the present. I think that's an, uh, an important note that we try to highlight because I even use myself as um, an example. I, I have a joke that just like a certain generation's line, you know, I say that everybody didn't march with King. Everybody wasn't on the bridge, right? But everybody sort of uses it down. No, I was there. I was marching with King. And so now our generation's <laughs> thing is, you know, I worked for Obama. Like it was like it's the next, <laughs> it's the next ah. thing. And I try to be truthful in my narrative and history. And I was that person when he first ran, like when he first came out, I was like, white folks ain't go, white folks gonna kill him. White folks ain't gonna vote, like, ain't gonna vote for Obama. Yeah. And also being from New York, you know, I was like, I'm gonna be over here with Hillary because white folks ain't gonna do this. And then when he got in the early states and I was like, wait, white folks gonna vote for him? <laughs> like, And so, and then I, and, and then I was like, yeah. well, let's go, right? And so that narrative of thinking, what will white people do? Right. And that's why even in the primary standpoint, right, we're thinking, but that's also part of the system that we're in the, 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 
the presidential election system of the primary of having to concern ourselves with the balance of delegates from different states, from different areas. So can we, can we make a decision on a nominee without thinking about what white folks would do? Yes, I think we should, because you, what, what happens is when you see that um, uh, a dis- demand is made consistently, Mm-hmm. Then people start to move, then the candidates move. So, for example, now there's this push for Bernie Sanders to drop out and Biden is more electable. I don't think so personally, but at any rate, he is the presumptive nominee, um, highly problematic for many reasons, I think. But I just noticed just a couple of days ago, uh, Biden uh, said that he believes that uh, public college should be free. Now, that is something that he would not have said if Bernie Sanders dropped out. And uh, I think he should, um, I think it's important for him to stay in as long as possible because now Biden is saying things that are helpful to us because he's being pressured. Mm. And uh, I I think we should make ourselves part of, we should be in the mix always. We should have demand. We should have uh, people, candidates should have to come before us and, uh, we make a demand that we want free public college. We want relief from student loan debt. We want uh, Medicare for all. We want any, whatever it is that will help us as a people and make it clear you're not getting our support if you don't talk about these things. Because now you see when they are worried about getting support, they change their tune. So this is something Biden never talked about, and now he is because he wants full backing of all Democrats as they approach the convention. So uh, rather than uh, see ourselves as these, you know, supplicants who, uh, you know, want the Democrat to win but won't make any demands and just sit and wait for um, other people to make decisions and make assumptions about who will and won't support a particular candidate. And by the way, I'm seeing this, they do this to white people too. Uh, so this year it was, well, you might want Medicare for all, but, uh, you know, conservative white people won't vote for it. So you shouldn't want that. You shouldn't demand that. Um, I don't know that that's true. There are segments who are, but those are people who aren't going to vote for a Democrat anyway, is my thinking on it. Exactly. So they do these things. And um, uh, it's a lot of gaslighting, in my opinion. And so we forget what has always worked for us. Um, uh, Our greatest successes come when we don't care what other people want. Our greatest successes always come when we talk about what we want and we talk about what we need and we talk about our citizenship rights and human rights. Um, Unfortunately, we gave that up with Obama. Uh, We were so, most black people were so anxious for him to win and for him to succeed and so much of the opposition to him was openly racist that we were silent with him and uh, let him do things that were not in our interest. So in 2008, the election year, that was the year of the Great Recession, and the banks were bailed out. But the people weren't bailed out. People lost their homes. There was no help for them. There was a stimulus package. It wasn't enough, though. And uh, the urge to defend him, um, actually, it, 
it harmed black people very greatly. I think it set in motion the dynamic. I think it normalized the dynamic I've been talking about. And um, it uh, put us uh, in a position of accepting anything or accepting nothing as long as the person uh, we were defending was a Democrat. Yeah. You know, one of the quotes that I have highlighted from your book is from Warren G. Harding. And the, I, I highlighted this quote because um, doing the advocacy that I do here in New York, I have often been in rooms with elected officials who ask the question, well, what else do you want? Jeez. Right. Like that, like that. I'm asking for something that is not owed to me. Um, and the, the quote here says the Negroes are very hard to please. If they could have half of the cabinet, 75 percent of the bureau chiefs, two thirds of the diplomatic appointments and all of the officers to enforce prohibition, perhaps there would be a measure of contentment temporarily. But I do not think it would long abide. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a. They, the, the, the real, and it's interesting about Harding, there have always been rumors that he himself was a black person, that he had African descent. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't go into that too much, but I, I just figured I'd mention it while we were talking. But um, uh, the, the, the subtext of that quote is that we don't have any rights and we should be happy with anything. And the, my response to, to that is... Uh, uh, the Negroes are very hard to please. My response would be, yes, we are. Uh, I don't think anybody should hesitate to uh, demand the things that uh, Americans are supposed to have. And, uh, but that is the attitude uh, that um, we are this special interest group to be placated, um, but uh, not too much Republicans, whichever party is the white people's party. And since the late 60s, that's been the Republicans. Uh, can ignore us, and not just ignore us, actually, but campaign against us and make appeals to racism in order to win. But Democrats often try to do the same thing. I, I say they, they depend on our votes, but they wish they did not. And uh, so if we let them, they can get away with doing uh, some of the same stuff. So yes, we're going to demand a lot. Nobody else stops demanding anything. So, um, and rich people, they, they, um, Wealthy people, corporations, the military-industrial complex—they're always making demands. We—they are about to apparently pass this stimulus package in the wake of the COVID-19 uh, outbreak and the impact on the economy. And most of it is going to corporations and to rich people. Another tax cut, bailing out industries which uh, have used their money to buy back their stock instead of uh, hire people and do things that would be helpful to all of us. So uh, I think nobody should uh, uh, be fooled into thinking that uh, we're the only ones making demands. We don't make enough demands. There are people and um, interests who constantly demand, and no sooner is one demand met than they make another one. They're relentless. So we, we should be as well. I definitely uh, agree. And to that point, in terms of party, I always try to, as I'm educating people about the political process and tell them about political parties are a political tool, right? They're a vehicle in how you exhibit uh, political power, but neither party will save us. 
<laughs> like nobody is going to save us. And there's a quote also in your book from W.E.B. Du Bois who said, may God write us down as asses if we ever again we are found putting our trust in either the Republican or the Democratic parties. So talk a bit about, because you mentioned some key folks, some key moments um, in the book of African-American leadership and advocacy. And to your earlier point in that we have only succeeded when we have collectively and consistently demanded our, our and, and push back for our rights and what's owed to us. Talk a bit about um, some examples in terms of how that played out. Sure. Well, if, you know, if you go back to the first days when there was a black uh, electorate, right uh, after the <clears throat> excuse me after the Civil War, when uh, briefly uh, black uh, at the time when men could vote, black men in the South could vote, and uh, in the North, people like Frederick Douglass were. Um, uh, actively involved in uh, uh, trying to uh, make our case to politicians. At that time, it was the Republican Party that was the Black People's Party. It was the party of Lincoln. Democrats were the party of the South. And uh, every election, Frederick Douglass would uh, make the case for the Republicans. But what happened is, after the Civil War, as the years went on, um, there was less and less support for uh, fighting for black people. So we had a Republican in uh, 1876, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. He came to be known as Rutherford because um, he made a deal. He lost the popular vote. They disenfranchised black people. They said certain votes didn't, uh, certain states didn't count. And uh, he ended up uh, winning the Electoral College and becoming president. In exchange for this deal, he began the process of ending Reconstruction, of taking the last black uh, troops, federal, um, the last federal troops out of, uh, at that point, it was just South Carolina and Louisiana. Um, so he was a traitor. There was, um, uh, immediately after the Civil War, there were um, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed. There was a Civil Rights Act passed, but the Supreme Court struck it down. And every time a new Republican president came in, they, there was a hope that um, that president would uh, uh, make the effort of uh, passing a new Civil Rights Act. And it never happened. And so Frederick Douglass, every time a Republican came in, he'd say, oh, we must have, uh, for example, Garfield, who um, was assassinated and didn't serve in office very long. But he didn't do very much. Um, uh, and he and others, so none of them, every president who came in, a Republican that is, there was some hope that they would uh, protect black people's uh, rights, citizenship rights and actually just protect us to live in, in the era of mob, uh, lynch mob rule. So it goes on and on. And at the time, as I said, it was the Republicans and Frederick Douglass once said, uh, famously said, uh, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. And uh, so uh, there was always this goal of backing someone who would, uh, who would help us. But then we saw a treachery like uh, Theodore Roosevelt in 1906. Uh, he, um, well, there was a, uh, a unit of black soldiers in, uh, stationed in Brownsville, Texas. And from the time they arrived, they were subject to attacks by the white community. Uh, someone was murdered. They were accused of committing the murder. And uh, Roosevelt, 
knew that Republicans needed black votes, so he waited a couple of days after election day and then court-martialed all these soldiers. And um, uh, this was disgraceful. There was great anger in the black community that this betrayal had taken place. But that is where, um, and this is something that's still happening more than 100 years later, uh, putting all our eggs into the basket of uh, whichever party we think is going to uh, going to help us. So Eve uh, Du Bois, uh, at, later in his life, he, he became, um, uh, he said he was through with the electoral system. Like Paul Robeson, his, at one point his passport was taken. He became a member of the Communist Party. He actually died outside of the country. But before he said, um, uh, he said those words, um, he was one of those actively involved in um, uh, trying to get as much as black people could from the two political parties and usually without great success. Uh, but I don't think the, and this is a debate many people have about how much we can expect from the electoral system. If we don't participate at all, you get nothing. Yep. But uh, our participation has to be strategic. And um, I, I don't think it's strategic to sit around and conclude that uh, Joe Biden is the answer. Uh, in case you can't tell, I, I think he would lose to Trump. I also, he's a very conservative Democrat. He always was. Uh, and I don't think it's a victory to uh, have a conservative Democrat instead of Trump. And I don't believe that's all we have to settle for. I don't believe that the only way a Democrat wins is by moving to the right. I don't think that's true. Um, that's what's been allowed to happen. So, of course, we're told that that's our only possibility. Uh, and then sometimes we'll get a Democrat in like Bill Clinton. He ended up being, he was always very conservative. He uh, executed a mentally disabled black man while he was running that first time in 1992. He was tough on crime. He had this disgraceful photo op at a prison in Georgia parading around black men in prison garb to talk about how tough he was on crime. The sister sold our moment to embarrass Jesse Jackson. Once he got in office, his welfare so-called reform, which pushed millions of people into poverty and undid one of the most important things of the Roosevelt era, which uh, uh, the Social Security Act said that everybody had a right to public assistance. And in doing, getting rid of that, he did great damage to people who were already poor and consigning them to poverty for pretty much forever. Um, so, uh, so we do have to be careful with this these uh, supposed strategies, we should be looking at where we are and where it's gotten us to this point in uh, deciding um, what actions to take in the future. Mm. Thank you very much for that analysis. I do believe that, as you mentioned, not participating, you know, like throwing up our hands and not participating in the electoral process gets us nothing. And, and to that point, you know, one of the first things I started seeing after Biden started winning primaries was, well, where's his black agenda or where is thing? And I always try to remind people that you have it twisted as if you're waiting for the candidate or the person to come up with an agenda rather than delivering to them what the agenda should be. Do you have any thoughts about exactly. that? No, you're exactly right. We There should have been a, uh, I mean, it's difficult for, you know, trying to herd cats, trying to, we're people with many different opinions about, what 
we should have and how to get there, but to at least uh, come together and um, uh, agree on some very basic principles. So, for example, you can't get our votes if you talk about putting more people in jail. And also, you have to have a plan to start reducing uh, the, um, uh, the mass incarceration system, that you can't uh, attack uh, uh, black and brown countries abroad. Lest we forget it's Obama who destroyed Libya. Uh, that was Hillary Clinton's baby and laughing about getting Gaddafi killed. We can't accept anything like that again. Uh, we do need relief from student loan debt. Nobody needs that more than black people do. People, long after they've gone to schools, many of which um, uh, get student loans which shouldn't, that are fraudulent. Um, these for-profit colleges, people go into debt literally for nothing. They get degrees that are worthless. You've got to stop that. So just off the top of the, the healthcare system, uh, the reason the United States now has more cases of uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus than any other country in the world is because we have a healthcare system that is in uh, uh, the hands of, uh, that's been privatized, it's in the hands of for-profit corporations, big pharma, insurance companies, uh, states and localities, closing hospitals, getting rid of hospital beds has brought us to this point. And uh, so these are some of the issues that we should all be able to agree on and to protect our votes. Donald Trump is in office because our votes aren't protected. Voter suppression, actual cheating, actual theft of black votes through a variety of uh, methods. So these are some of the demands that we have to put before the candidates and, and we'll decide who we think the nominee ought to be, and in and if the the final uh, Democratic nominee is not the person we chose, I think we have a better chance of getting someone who will at least do some of what we want, uh, rather than thinking we have to take just anyone. And I think we have to look at I I it, it's going to be an interesting year, but. Um, I think we may, there may be a split in the Democratic Party. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think black people are so convinced that uh, that's their only hope that we will, we will not join in making this split happen. Um, I think that's going to be very important um, development, and it's something that should not be feared because of what we end up with is a, a party that... Um, uh, routinely ignores us or enjoy, uh, joins in beating us up and that doesn't even uh, uh, guarantee our ability to vote at all, then we have to ask, what good are they? Um, uh, the Democrats, they, um, uh, one of their arguments was uh, in favor of Biden. They said Bernie Sanders will lose. They'll lose seats in Congress. Well, they lost seats in Congress during Obama and, and across the country. They put all their eggs into the basket of the presidency. They didn't raise money for the so-called down-ballot races. And more than 900 seats were lost in, in Congress and state legislatures. And uh, the Democrats were wiped out across it. So Trump is one of the reasons, I believe, that led to Trump getting in. Uh, so I don't think we should shrink from the fight. We've got to be a part of the fight. And we cannot be the ones who defend this corruption, which has brought us to this low point. 
where we um, are are so convinced the Democrats win, and yet we end up with Donald Trump anyway. So we have to question what they've done. We have to question what we've done, and um, and be a real um, and really help ourselves. And we we've been convinced that if we speak up, we will be hurting ourselves. So uh, uh, black voters are risk averse anyway. And now it's gotten to this point where we think that if we talk about anything that we want, the, de- the Republicans will win. And uh, we think the only are, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, black politics is trunk to nothing more than keeping Republicans out of office. And if that's what you think, and if that's your main motivation, then you will act against your own self-interest. We always talk about... Uh, uh, white people who vote for Republicans who act against their interests. Well, we do the same thing. And I think it's important to acknowledge that so that we can end this cycle uh, that I uh, write about in, in the book of, um, uh, of not helping ourselves and being convinced that we have to disappear and disappear our interests uh, in order to keep this lesser evil in office. Mm. So the the last thing I want to discuss with you, something I've used in speeches and, and, and talks since Trump was elected in office, was that, which I think is sort of, uh, your book sort of highlights, is that Trump wasn't the first racist, openly racist, <laughs> and and home bigoted president in the United States, right? That we um, collectively yes. have been through this a number of times, and whether they just because we have more access in terms of social media and TV, and that maybe we haven't lived through it, meaning my generation. Um, but my grandmother, who's ninety four, another is when you know you mentioned Trump to her, or whatever she's like, he's just an idiot, just like everybody, you know every. Everybody else like to her context she has seen this before so this isn't as um monumental as i would say that my generation and say uh, millennials who are under me and whatever the generation is under them i don't, I don't know how the generations break down anymore <laughs> but see see it as... <laughs> yes i know <laughs> yeah who's the ex who's millennial who's I, the, yeah i don't, I don't know. know all i know is how old i am and that I, right <laughs> but it's to make people think that they, they feel despondent, right? And they feel like, oh, he's so racist, he's so idiotic, he's so this that I can't believe we got here. And your book actually highlights that we've been here many times before and gives us uh, uh, the ability to go back and look on how we've gotten out of those times. It hasn't been perfect when we got out, but um, the instances, as you mentioned, where we collectively um, looked at what we need and put our needs first, that is the reason why parties can change and go from, you know, you can go from one to the other because at the end of the day, you're focusing on what the needs of you and your community are. Yes, yes. I mean, we have, uh, I'm just thinking in my lifetime, uh, Ronald Reagan or Nixon. Let's start with Nixon in the uh, late '60s. He talked about law and order, and that was about that was a reaction against the civil rights movement. Uh, we had Reagan, who talked about welfare queens and told stories about extracting young bucks using food stamps, and uh, um, talking about state rights uh, as he was campaigning in Mississippi. These were all um, these were all dog whistle 
calls to racism. Trump just dispensed with the dog whistle. He just comes out and says it. So people know that he's the racist president. And uh, in making that appeal, that's one of the reasons he won. He got so many more votes than uh, Romney did the, the last Republican, the previous Republican candidate. Uh, so this has not ended. Democrats have done it too. Jimmy Carter made statements about ethnic purity. The big issue in the 70s was school busing to integrate the schools. And um, uh, Carter said that uh, he was in favor of maintaining the ethnic purity of neighborhoods. And he was against forced busing. And Ford, who he ran against, said the same thing. And Clinton, uh, uh, some of the things I mentioned, and he was responsible for the crack cocaine laws that so devastated black people and put mostly black people in jail. So uh, Trump is not the first. He's just the most overt. And the uh, ineptitude of the Democratic Party caused by its decision to be the party of corporate interests instead of the party that meets the needs of the people uh, resulted in uh, Trump's uh, victory. So he's not the first. He's not the last. Um, and, uh, well, he should be the last if he, he, it, well, there shouldn't be any more Democrats who make these racist appeals if they know that they can't get away with it. But if we allow them to get away with these things and don't say anything, then they know they can do it. And, uh, I, I think we have to understand our power and remember the power we have. And you, you started out by saying, uh, everybody wants to talk about the, the civil rights movement, but nobody wants to put those things into action, which did so much for us. So it can't just be people going to Selma, Alabama every year, uh, talking about the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, it, it can't be that. It can't just be politicians being allowed to show up in black churches on Martin Luther King Day. If we're going to talk about that era and what we accomplished, we have to talk about how we can do that again. And we did it by making demands and, frankly, not caring uh, uh, about uh, what other people wanted, what politicians wanted. And uh, we looked out for ourselves. We made the demand. We made them in mass. And we got results. And that is something that's very important for us to remember and to carry forward. Well, thank you so very much for joining me um, for this conversation. I, I did. I read the book in three hours. <clears throat> um, so I oh, my really, Yes, I was really um, enthralled uh, with it. And, you know, some of the stuff I, I knew, particularly the early stuff and obviously the stuff in my lifetime. But there was a, a chunk in the middle that I was like, oh, wait, I didn't know that. So those <laughs> of you who can, who can at this moment, you're at home and maybe maybe need something to update about the presidency. And remember, as we say on the show, we put all of our, our, our hopes and dreams on legislation and on politics and electing individuals. And I, as we try to remind folks on this show, you know, you have to actually participate in order to get your demands and in order to get the things you need done. So once we get Trump out of office, my fear is that people are going to feel like, all right, we did it go home. And that's it. That's the yes. end of everybody's activism. I think so. I think so. I, I think it's, I think it's been a mistake to see him as this extra, this existential threat, this complete outlier. Um, and as the worst thing that can possibly happen to us, he's not the worst thing that can, as bad as he is, 
he's not the worst thing that can uh, happen to us. And to just see him leaving office as being our uh, victory and nothing else, I think, is a very grave mistake. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I have aside a fear. From, I, I have a fear that that is, you know, afterwards, you know, at the beginning when he was elected, um, I had this quote in a um, paper and did this uh, uh, report that's saying basically the organizing space is going to be like January at the gym now. Because now, because people yes. view him as the great thing, it's just like everybody is there and everybody's creating new organizations and everybody's raising money for the do their one thing. And it's just like, great, great. We've been here this whole time trying to get people engaged on a lot of this stuff. And now here come all yeah. of you. Great. Yes. Yay. For everybody paying attention. But at the same time. Listen, <laughs> like the focus is not just getting one man out of office. The focus is uplifting the exactly. people. The, po the focus is making sure that the people of the country are whole and not focusing on um, just one individual man. So if you um, uh, need something to do while you are staying at home, and I hope you are not out in these streets right now, um, you can pick <laughs> up Prejudential Black America and the Presidents by Margaret Kimberly. We're going to share the link out with all of you and make sure to pick it up. You can get it at the library apps. You can get it on Kindle. Um, you can order it on um, the or, or corporation that will not be named right now, but you can get it wherever you get books um, <laughs> and make sure um, so that you know the complete history. It's important that you know the history and the context. And it's not. It, it's fine to at the same time talk about why somebody did some great things and, and led a country forward. They can also do terrible things. The The note I use all the time is your dad could have been the greatest dad to you and still been a horrible husband. So that can happen at both times. And so that is why we need to know the history, the context in terms of what has happened. Thank you very much, Ms. Kimberly, for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civics uh, when we come right back from this break. Stay tuned. How can it be? So much to our guest, Margaret Kimberly, who I was so ecstatic of having on the show. Um, I hope you do go pick up the book. It is not a, a long read. Like I read it in three hours. So maybe you can read it in three or maybe six. I don't know. Um, but since we're home and um, maybe catching up on some book reading, um, it could also be something that you get for your uh, high school students or college students that you have in your family so that they can supplement what they are learning um, from U.S. government class or from uh, um, a government or a political-based class in college. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to shout us out on social media if you listen to the show. Um, and we'll be back next week with more of Sunday Civics. It's who we are.